Thank you. If you all please stand for the public reading of God's word. We'll be reading from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 20. We'll do the reading uh, responsibly. I'll read verse 1. And then my designated reader, who has his mic, right? Verse 2. I think you should be able to uh, maybe make it from there. I'm reading from the NIV. And God spoke all these words. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. You shall not misuse the name of, your, of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. With fear. And said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. All together now? Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. This is the word of the Lord. Won't you join me in prayer? Dear precious Father, we thank you so much for gathering us here on this day, on Pentecost Sunday, where we celebrate not only the arrival of the Holy Spirit upon your saints, but also the giving of your law on Mount Sinai. So, Lord, as you take the speaker, uh, may I be faithful to your message and may it be spoken with your Holy Spirit power and that all of us would dig deep into our hearts and see the reflection of your image in your word and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, we pray all of these things. Amen. You may be seated. Before we begin, why don't we look at each other and greet with Happy Pentecost Sunday. Happy Pentecost Sunday. It's a big deal, you guys, Pentecost Sunday, because, I mean, the more I studied about it, it's like, it's not, I mean, even prior to the Holy Spirit, which is the biggest deal of all, it turns out that it is a very meaningful uh, celebration, even, okay, not just for Christians, but also for the Jews. The Jews look at the Pentecost as a very special day. How many of you know the Ten Commandments by heart? We just read it today together. You guys all should know. Like, you should know this as a fact now, okay, like a Bible trivia. 
If I ask you, where do you find the Ten Commandments? You guys should be able to say, oh, Exodus 20. Make it like a device in your, in your memory. Like there's 10 commandments. So you got to go to 20 for some reason, okay? If you can make that connection, you'll be able to. How many of you know it by heart? All 10 of them, 10 commandments. Anyone? Anyone? Do you know it by heart? You do? Okay, good. Uh, if I was to do a survey right now of all the church members here in the NBC, I don't know. I don't know what percentage would get it all correct without error. It's surprising that not all Christians know the Ten Commandments. And it's alarming. And, uh, and Jesus, as he sheds his light on, on our particular commitment to the scripture, it should, it should let us know, man, we should, uh, uh, we should know something. Some things are so basic to our faith. And if we don't know it, we got a question. So why don't we know that? Why don't I know that? And uh, uh, of course, we're doing the study on Exodus, but while we're doing the kind of, we were going over this together. And, uh, and I remember it came to my attention. Jeez, I should, I should brush up on it myself. When you look at the wisdom literature of the Bible, the author of the wisdom literature, sometime, uh, sometimes the psalmist says things like, I delight in your word. I delight in your decrees. Your laws are the source of my joy. I mean, these are like, all the exaltations that the writer writes about how beautiful the law is. And as we read these things, I wonder to my heart, to all our hearts, do we feel the same way? Do we have that kind of conviction, conviction and the inspiration to read more and more because it is that satisfying to our souls? I pray today that, that we will all get a chance to really meditate on the Ten Commandments and be amazed at God's perfect design in the morality that he has encoded into the universe and our conscience. Now, this is one of the major contentions of Apostle Paul in the New Testament is this apparent gap between the law on the one hand of the Old Testament and then the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It seems like they don't mash together very well. And this is the same thing that the uh, reformer Martin Luther of the Reformation uh, pointed out that the fact that uh, some people trying to earn their way into salvation by doing works of the law versus the fact that we can't, there's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we can do with our efforts to earn the salvation because there's only one person who was worthy to be able to do the works of the law, which was Jesus himself. And out of that fact, the whole Reformation movement came by rereading the Bible. It's like, we got to go back to the word of God because there's a lot of false teachings that were going on at the time in the church. So this may be one of those moments. We may be wanting to cycle through and reread the Bible and see what it is that we know, we think we know. New believers sometimes, um, when they read the Bible, I mean, maybe not even new believers, maybe us. I want to do a survey, like internal survey right now. When you read the Old Testament, just by nod of your hands, when you read the Old Testament and then you read the New Testament, do you come to the conclusion maybe that we're talking about kind of different gods? Have you guys ever felt that when you're reading, go, geez, man, Old Testament God sounds a little bit different than the New Testament God. How many of you have ever felt that way a little bit? A little bit, right? A little bit. The Old Testament speaks of a God who judges the whole world 
What a devastating global flood. Why annihilating everything on the surface of the earth, living, everything alive, not even just humans, but like even animals. Brings down plagues over Egypt. I mean, the last plague was the plague of every firstborn, not even, not just people, but animals too dying. Gives a law to the Israelites, pronounces curses, you know. While in the New Testament, we see God who sends his one and only son to save sinners. Like we saw last week, a, a, a Jesus who forgives the adulteress who was brought into the public shame. She said, does, he's all saying, does anybody condemn you? Look around you. Nobody, nobody condemns me, sir. Neither do I condemn you. Now walk away from your life of sin. We see God who showers love upon us and he requires of us to forgive one another as in turn he forgives us. That's the kind of God that we see in the New Testament. So we see kind of a, a, a divide. We see a, a definitely two sides of a very different God, it seems like. And it's not just new believers that think this way. In, it's only not only in the camp of new believers that, that we see this... Uh, at least two distinct gods in the Bible, but even very learned scholars and theologians have actually said this. They believe that we're maybe we're dealing with two different gods in the Bible. For example, representing here in the United States in our history, we have Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., one of my personal heroes, by the way. He, he has taught nonviolent resistance in his, civil, in his fight for civil liberties and the rights of the African-Americans, right? I mean, you can't get closer to Jesus than that. Nonviolent confrontation and then fighting for the rights of his people. You can't get more like Moses than that when you're leading his own people out from the shackles of the civil oppression. And he ended up being martyred. He was assassinated. But in the record of all his studies in the sermons, he did preach that the God of the Old Testament was a tribal God, only known to the society of the Israelites. When you come to the New Testament, you see the highest ethic is love for your enemies, not just your friends now. These are the people that are, are persecuting you. They're the ones that, that want to remove you, and you're still blessing them. That's the, the love for the enemies. But in the Old Testament, for the sake of the God of Israel, go kill a Philistine. That's what... Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has preached, recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, heralded as one of the top-notch spiritual leaders of American history. He thought Yahweh of the Old Testament and Jesus Christ of the New Testament were different. Now, it's amazing how distant he grew in his theology because originally he was from a very conservative Baptist denomination. He got ordained by by Baptist Church, and later on, he became more progressive in his ideas, and, and I want to, I don't want to say, let's use today's uh, time here on the pulpit to critique his theology, but we should know how we are to understand this, this gap, this apparent gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. How do we bridge that? There are many non-negotiable things that we have to know as Christians. Like, when you are trying to share your faith with other very, very religious people, like the Islamic people, man, a lot of us will get stumped because they will ask some questions that we will not know how to answer. And one of those basic teachings is monotheism. 
monotheism. You guys know what that word means? Belief in what? Say it louder, guys. You guys are kind of shy. You guys should like all be here, you know, because I have the very, I won't spit on you. <laughs> you know, monotheism is in the belief in the one singular God. There's only one God, right? You know, even though Dr. King, I love him, says uh, Old Testament, you know, different God, tribal God, and the New Testament, different God. I mean, we're talking about the same God. It's just really hard for us to wrap our minds around such distinctives, you know. When you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, this is the Old Testament now. God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Shema Israel Adonai Elohenu Adonai Echad. That's what God says. Your, your God is one, singular. And of course, when we come to Christianity, we believe in one God, three persons. There's three different manifestations, three different distinct persons in this one Godhead that works in unison. It's one God. It's one God. But he does make his appearance. He works both economically both and ontologically in his beings, three, three and one. In our culture in the United States, we have all kinds of fetishes and idols since the advent of the new age. There's false gods and demonic spirit. Uh, there's spiritistic kind of a worship that's going on. You might have heard me actually say this. They actually have pagan witchcraft seminaries here in the United States. When you drive up a little bit on the Pacific Northwest, they have witchcraft seminary. So if you guys are watching the Harry Potter series, the school of Hogwarts is not just fiction. There's actually people that practice these things. And I got to tell you, when we're talking about one God of the Bible, this is the same God that once judged the entire earth with the giant flood. He's, come, he's coming to judge the earth again. It says in the Bible that he will judge with fire. Just because Jesus came in as a person of love and then our, what we are called to do is to love. We think that it's like, oh, no more judgment. But no, let's make no mistake about it. If you go to Revelation, the stuff that was preview of the terror of the judgment of God in the Old Testament, none of it has been lost. He retains all of it. If anything, he actually turns up the heat so to speak. He cranks it up a notch. So let's not make any mistake about it. It's the same God of the Old Testament, same God of the New Testament, same judgment. Maybe difference is that it's not going to be rain and flood. It will be fire. You guys know that the rainbow, the rainbow was a sign for after the flood. God was so pleased with Noah's, you know, burnt offering. He, he gave the sign of the ark and he, and he promised that he will, I will never judge the earth like this again. I think he meant he will never judge it by flood again because what clearly the, the, the testament shows is that he will judge the second time around by fire. Good luck to, to those guys over there that use that rainbow flag as a symbol of their liberties. Good luck on those guys. And you know what he says about the, the school of Hogwarts, the people that do the magic, the practitioners, you know, the sorcerers, the witches, the warlocks, the practitioners of the dark magical arts. These people do not inherit the kingdom of God. They will be reserved for the lake of fire along with the, with the false prophet, the antichrist, and the Satan. So as we take a, a look at the Ten Commandments today, we notice that 
this is not only important for the Christians, but it's be even before us. It's important to the Jews. If you talk to any, if you have any Jewish friends in, in your life now or in the future, ask them. Ask them how important the, the Ten Commandments are. If there's any orthodoxy left in there, if they're still practicing Jews, the Ten Commandments reign supreme in their moral life. And I think that every student of humanities on campuses should take a look at it, at least, because it has been a document, it has been a legal injunction that has been affecting civilization of the Western world for centuries, for millenniums, in fact. Every human person should take a look at it and marvel at its perfection. You look at the Ten Commandments, and when you really sit there and think about it, there's nothing that you can change. You cannot add to it. You cannot take away from it. It's just amazing. Every single civilization, if you were to start a colony on the moon, if you were to start with this set of rules, it will last far longer than a couple of generations, what I want to say. I wonder when I was a little kid, I came across the Ten Commandments. I go, geez, man, how could a, a human person could come up with this? This has to have been from God. And I remember I was little. I was like, geez, it's amazing. And the older I get, I come to the conclusion that it is only possible as a, as a revelation of God that we get the Ten Commandments. I'm going to jog your memory back to uh, New Testament now. This is Matthew 22, 36. There's an expert of the law that asked Jesus, what, what is the greatest commandment? And then Jesus answers, right after the Shema, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4, Shema Israel, your, your Lord, your God is one. The fifth, fifth verse is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's the first of the great commandment. And then the second one is like the first one. Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. The full, the full verse reads like this. Do not bear a grudge against your neighbor among, from amongst your own people, for I am the Lord. And love your neighbor as yourself, for I'm the Lord your God. So the first four of the commandments that we read from the Ten Commandments, it pertains, all of all those four pertains, and it describes how we are to love our God. When we examine our conscience, that's the first thing that we got to ask ourselves, because that is the most primary, the most important relationship that you have to another, the other, the other being God, who has made it all of us, who has created all of us. How to love my God with all my heart and my soul and my mind. Of course, this day and age, the greatest obstacle in, doing, in being able to even do this is that the people of the world do not know God. People don't know God. Do this social experiment. I mean, if you know some friends, if you have friends that, I mean, obviously not Christian friends. If you have any non-Christian friends, ask them. What is your conception of God? How do you view God? They will not have a very good idea unless they're talking about referring to the Christian, a Judeo-Christian God. You know what the Apostle Paul says? He says that even though when you look at the nature in all creation, when you look at just a, something as simple as a, a leaf from a tree or plant, you can see that there's design in it and you, have to, you can only marvel at the Creator. What Paul says that people, human people, actively suppress the truth of God because they don't want to worship God. They rather worship the things that are created, animals, four-footed things, reptiles. And that's why God has actually finally 
handed their hearts and affections over as that of unbelievers. And that's why we get the, the perversions, the sexual perversions and the homosexuality. So homosexuality is sin alone in itself because of the Levitical, for the Levitical injunction. But even prior to that, you don't have to get to the law to know that there's something fundamentally wrong with these practices. It is the active suppression of truth and the reality of God that leads people along those ways. It's a very disheartening reality today because there are groups of people increasing in number and influence that are trying to make it normal, trying to normalize that kind of lifestyle that actually just actively rejects God out of the picture of our consciousness, our conscious minds. We want to do away with the worship of the living God. When we look at the opening statement, when you look at the Ten Commandments, there's a preamble. You know how we have a preamble for the Constitution of the United States? And it's a very exclusive preamble towards the Israelites. Verse 2 of today's text says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God can only say that to the Israelites. He cannot say that to any other, other people. Except, of course, if you import yourself into a situation, if you're an African-American, African-Americans will read that and go, yeah, he's my God. Has he has, he has led me out of slavery. If we look at the Korean people, when we were colonialized by Japan, we will read it that way. It is to the Israelites who God revealed himself and liberated them and had given them their identity and their self-worth. If you've been a slave all your life, you only know slavery. You've never tasted freedom. You don't know what it means to make your own decision for yourself. You don't know such things. This should have been stored into their very DNA, right? They should have known this. I mean, it should have been deep seeped into their bones, but no, it hasn't. It has not. The first commandment is this. You shall not have any gods before me. If we were, this is a prohibitive negative statement, right? Prohibitive statement. If we were to change that and then change the language and turn it into the affirmative, God is saying, be faithful to and focus on me, the living God. When you hear somebody talk about God, there are some clues in the language whether they have a relationship with God or not. Is he a living God who's speaking to you that you are intending on worshiping and obeying? Does he say no sometimes where you just carry the no as a no, you accept it, and you don't pursue the matter further? Right? That's the clue, whether, whether to see yourself, you really are a worshiper of God or not. Be faithful to you and focus on me, the living and the true God. Now, this should have hit them very close to the heart because the Israelites, while they were living in Egypt as slaves, they were living in a culture, in a land of idol worship. I don't know how much of, of the United States culture is still a land of the land of the free, a land of uh, you know, the God-fearers. I don't know if we are anymore. Uh, we are, call it, even pastors today, they call the United States of America a post-Christian culture and society. One of the reasons why evangelism is so difficult here is because we're not evangelizing. For, for most part, we're re-evangelizing people that have already abandoned the faith. They've been there, done that. They've been in the church, and they were disillusioned. They have never been able to develop a, a personal relationship with the living Yahweh or God or Jesus, and they walked away. They want to do their own thing. They want to be their own God. Now, how idol worship 
manifest into daily lives of society, for example, during the Egyptian times, is randomly killing male babies because they're Hebrews out of the, out of the concern of population control. Do you think that may happen around the corner for us sometime in the next, in the next, in this coming, coming in this millennium? Absolutely. To mistreat slaves by demanding same production numbers while taking away resources. You guys all have an Apple phone, Apple product. We know about this. Nike shoes. We know that there are actually factories that are employing near slave labor with quotas that are completely inhuman and we still consume these products without really thinking about about it that much, you know? It pricks my conscience to, be, to, to tell you the truth, especially because we're so addicted to the products in the, themselves. We, we love the products so much. To, to the Pharaoh, Pharaoh of Egypt. I mean, Pharaoh was a power like that of God himself. All of Egypt would sway left or to the right, depending on how he woke up the, ne the next morning. If Pharaoh woke up in a good mood, it was a good day of feast and festival for the people of Egypt and maybe the Israelites. But if, they, if he woke up in a bad day, my goodness, it was, a bad, it was bad news, especially for the Israelites in their harsh treatment. What God requires of us is a singularity in our hearts when it comes to our worship of him. You know, to be honest with you guys, uh, there are some Sundays my heart is struggling because there are some days you have to be somewhere else. You know, there are some days it's just hard. You have to push through that. You got to push through that. And it, I got to tell you, it's worth it <laughs> because you have to understand who you're worshiping. You're worshiping the heaven, the, the, cre the creator of all things that are visible or tangible, any physical reality that we can actually, actually, you know, empirically examine, God has made it. God has made equally you and me, fearfully and wonderfully made in our, in our mother's wombs, with all our flaws and our design features, with all our talents and special unique traits. God has made each and every one of us in wonderful ways, as same as all the galaxies that are out there, billions and billions of galaxies that exist in this ever-expanding universe that we have yet to understand, fathom, you know? That is who we are coming to worship. Who can we worship that is deserving any more of this worship? Who else can we worship? Really, that's my question. You know, back in the old days, the sun was something that people used to worship. There's still sun worshipers today. And sun is a wor very worthy object of worship because it is through the ray of the sun you get the warmth of light visibility you get the, the plant that eat the rays of the sun and they grow and and they bear fruit you know we eat that fruit we eat the leaves we eat the lettuce right and then the animals eat those vegetations we eat the animals we have a perfect ecosystem that is owing to the life because of that light of the sun right but guess what the sun was not good enough for our worship. Our hearts deserve more. We have to go after the creator of the sun. The ancient rhetoric, you know, the polemic is that in the old days, when you look at the ancient Mesopotamian uh, literature, they're talking about the star gods and the sun gods. But what, what the Jews are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. We know a God who made those things. That is our God. It's like, you know, like, you know, when you're a little kid, my dad's stronger than you, that kind of a deal. So we got the ultimate father. That's our God. Is there anybody else that deserves our worship? No. That is how we are gathering today as worshiper of the highest of all beings. 
It will be not wrong to state this commandment like this. Make the object of our worship the highest being ever. There's no one higher. That's what we're coming to worship. And if you know who that is, our, our faces should be bowed down very low. Very low. That's true worship, guys. When you're in there, you can't taste the kind of liberty that you have in your soul. Because you're coming to, before a God that already knows all that thing that you're going through. Everything that you're going through. He knows. He knows even why you're going through them while we might not know. I pray that each and every one of us attending Sunday service here today will be able to do that every day. To worship the highest. The creator almighty. And never something created. Never something that's fabricated by this culture trying to sell it to you. Trying to have your soul go after it. I hope that we will be free in that way. Amen? Amen. The second commandment as well is prohibitive. If I was to summarize it for you, God is saying, do not make any idols in any form to serve it. Back in the days, they used to do that. They used to make little trinkets. They used to make, you know. But I might, I might have to ask you guys, do we only do that back in the days or do we still do that today? In the olden days, we're talking about people making things of the air, you know, birds, things of the earth, creepy, crawly things, you know. We're making uh, like lizards and things like that. And when you go down into the, into the water, there's fishies, you know. And people make these, these images. They put effigies of them and they put them on the wall and then they actually bow down to it and things like that. I'm not talking about just, I don't think that this commandment is just talking about visible things, but I think that He's talking about anything that can be birthed out of the human imagination. If you look at the Greek culture, they had a pantheon of gods and they were anthropomorphized. The human traits that we have, they were, they were assigned to these invented gods. You guys know uh, like uh, our Marvel comic superheroes like Superman, Aquaman, all these, all these. These are figments of people's imaginations that we, we place up there as these you know, super beings, right? And then Right away, when we're little kids, it captivates our imagination. It captivates our imagination, and we, we adore these things. I remember there was a huge, huge uh, controversy because when that, the Superman movie first came out, I remember this, by the way. When it first came out and it came to, came to Korea, there was, a, there was actually a kid who jumped off of a fifth-story building because he thought he could fly. And that kid was severely, severely injured, and a little later he passed away. It happens. It happens where we put people on a pedestal. We worship people as idols. Like I mentioned, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he was a human being. And when you examine his life, he was not a perfect human being. I do, I do see him as a hero, a role model of some sorts. But as I just shared with you this, this afternoon, his, his theology was imperfect. He had very dangerous theology. It happens in the movies, in the music, stardom of the human person and the public attention on them is a machinery of idolatry. YouTube is a machinery of idolatry, trying to make stars, YouTube stars. People think that if you get like a million likes, your life is set, and then like you're going to be just living like, like Brad Pitt and the rest of these guys. That's not how it works, you know? We're so mistaken. Machinery of idolatry. We make, we make idols out of things out of things that God created, things that we create. We, cre we make idols out of people. 
I remember watching a documentary one time. It was of an old lady who was blind in North Korea. And she got a transplant. She got transplant surgery done through a uh, Christian organization, missionaries. And the, the surgery was successful. So after she was healed from her, from her surgery, she was unbandaging her eyes. And she was able to see for the first time with this new set of eyes. And you know what she does? The first thing she does, she looks at the wall. She sees the picture of Kim Il-sung, the supreme leader of the communist North Korea. And then she bows down in front of it. Thank you for my eyes, she says. Man, I, I was crying when I saw that. I was like, tears came out of my eyes. I was so enraged. I was so enraged because I, how, do you, how do you emotionally respond to something like that? When this poor lady knows no better but to thank this picture, an effigy of a human person that is oppressing the rest of the nation until they start to death. Man, it makes me burn. It was a disheartening reality of that this poor lady didn't even know who to properly thank for the sight that was given to her. The world that we live in today has become so secularized. The idea of the holy and the religious all so removed after the so-called enlightenment that there are so many ideologies in many of our hearts already standing in there that makes it contrary to the possibility of a living God. I'll give you some examples. Evolution. I grew up with evolution. I thought that evolution was the only plausible truth to the all realities of natural things. Now, many, many years later, I realized Charles Darwin was mistaken. He had, made some, he had overlooked some very, very big blaring holes in his theory and the public school system is teaching it as a singular truth that cannot be contested? Really? I don't know. I don't know how, how else to how to swallow this because for the longest of, of time of my life, my formative years, I've been deceived. I've been thinking that everything that the universities were teaching was as uncontested truth of our reality. That's not the case because it systematically has removed from our minds the reality of the living God who's speaking to us in it. Fight for your faith, brothers and sisters. Fight it. And the ground for fighting is here in your mind and in your hearts. Don't let them sell this stuff to you. Don't buy that stuff wholesale. Be selective in what you purchase. Make your purchases wise. Communism. Communism. Communism was supposed to be in, originally a very great idea coming from the Bible. People sharing things, you know. That was the New Testament church, sharing things, sharing meals together, sharing space together, sharing resources together. But this communism, we're talking about philosophical materialism, where they have removed the spirit of God. They have removed God himself. Postmodernism has spawned this thing called identity politics that stem from human rights to choose your own gender. God has given us male and female, and people are saying, no, we don't want that. We want to choose. What? Are you serious? Man. As I look to the future, the progression of the so-called development is only headed towards more confusion and darkness. It is a chaos that leads to the eventual total destruction of culture and humanity. End times are coming. End times are coming. 
Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come soon. We need your order. We need your light. You are the light of the world is what I, we got to say. Mark my words. There is a, the day when the education system will have to become more privatized by the church and the family is already here. Do you know how many, what, there's a great percentage of churchgoers that are homeschooling nowadays because what they're peddling as truth out in the public system is pretty bad. It's pretty bad. And then the people that your children in the future will have to go to school with, man, I don't know. I don't know. Unless they're trained so well from your own household and the churches that they will be able to make an influence and to shine the light into the darkened world. Until then, until that happens, I say we got to say good again. We have to separate. Big time. We cannot rely on public education only, both at the state and the national level, because in this direction of the so-called progress, it's not progress at all. It's regression into caveman times. To love God is the most fundamental of human obligations in the, in the most necessary order of human ethics, but this has been rejected in the fall of humanity through sin. Did you know that to not know God is a sin? To not know God is not, it's like, you know, you drove, you drove on the freeway, okay? And you haven't seen this, you haven't been paying attention to the signs. So you were stepping a little bit over, you were 75 on the 65 zone. When a cop pulls you over and you say, well, I didn't know. Do you think that's going to fly? I didn't know is not an excuse. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's what we have the obligation to preach, to preach the word of God to the people because so that, so that they would know and make an informed decision. So they won't hate us when, when, when they wind up in hell later, right? As we have read in the text today, God's law refers to the love of God. When you look at the law of God, it's in there. It's in there. To hate God, which means to live as if he did not matter in my, in my life and, and to put myself in the center or the throne of my heart of my reality, this can carry the curses to three and fourth generations. But look at how disproportionate that is it's disproportionate when you love god not three or four generations are they blessed for thousands of generations god says that they will be blessed may your children and your children's children be blessed to a thousand generations amen he's saying amen because it's coming it's looming large right it's coming any, any moment now Right now, you go, oh, I'm not even married yet, Pastor, but you blink once, you blink twice, there you go. You're already going to have a little one that's going to need his blessings. Amen? It's a tangible benefit. When we look at the law of God, the law of God includes a tangible benefit that continues on down to generations. It's a simple choice that God presents to us in his law. As simple as the gospel of Jesus Christ by his holy grace. Do you receive Jesus or no? You receive him, you get eternal salvation. And when you present the people with that obvious choice, how many people actually reject it? So many, too many. Even one is too many, I'd say. But they do. They go by the droves and thousands. They choose hell over the saving grace of Lord Jesus Christ. The third commandment is, do not use the name of God in vain. And you know what is... I want to point out the irony about this because the Jews of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin and the high priest, they've actually used this as a background of the commandment, as a foundation against Jesus' indictment for blasphemy. If there's one person who had a real relationship with God, the Father, it was Jesus. 
And they were saying, you're blaspheming because you're saying that God is your father. False accusation. He gets crucified for calling God his father. What do you call? What do you call God except for by what he is? But I want you guys to know this, brothers and sisters. The place of the cross for Jesus was not a seat of shame, but a throne of glory. That's where he was exalted to the highest. It's the lowest place where anybody can go from a worldly point of view. When you flip it upside down from, spirit of, from God's spiritual perspective, it was the highest place where he was exalted. He draws all the people to himself by being on that cross for that moment, for, for those hours, you know. The fourth commandment as well was the basis for why Jesus was criticized by the Jews, his Jewish legalists of his time. To, to share with you what the... You guys should know this now. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you the, the commandments one by one so that you can have it memorized, okay? First one, you shall have no other gods before me, okay? Exclusive statement. There's only one God. The second law is, second commandment is, don't make gods for yourselves or serve any of them. That's the second one, okay? Third one is, do not use God's name in vain. Don't yell Jesus Christ when you want to say a curse word because you stub your toe. When you use the Lord's name, use it very carefully, very gingerly. It's a sacred, holy name. Amen? The fourth one is a Sabbath law. Man, I don't know how many times Jesus gets into fights with his rabbis, with his Pharisees, over the Sabbath law. You know what Jesus says? He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one that decides. He can make a decision on who to heal, who to save on that day. But these Jews, they're picking a fight with the, with the, with the, with, with the Messiah. And they don't even realize when you're pointing out, when you're enforcing the Sabbath law, aren't you working on the Sabbath? If you're like, if you're like policing the people like, who's keeping the Sabbath, if you're doing that on the Sabbath, aren't you violating the Sabbath yourself? When God gives the Sabbath, he's granting the people the privilege of rest. Work for six days really hard. Give it, your, give it your all, those six days. But on the seventh day, I want to invite you to the rest that I gave to myself. Does God need rest? God never needed, ever, ever needed any rest. But he purposefully rested on the seventh day, setting that day aside for a day of relationship with his people. And Jesus said this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. The Jews that were attacking him did not understand that. Their hearts veered so far away from the intent, from the intention, the spirit of the law. When you look at the law of God and you look at only its letters, all you can see is the rules as the times goes by. You think it's a game and you know the rules really well that you have an advantage and you can win the game. But what happens is that you miss the relationship that these rules are meant to protect. The rules are there to protect the relationship, me and God and me with, with others, right? And when we look at any law, the letter of the law is just as important as the spirit of the law, the intent by which the law was written. In the spirit of the law, you can see the Father's heart. You can feel his affection for us. And the Jews, sadly enough, they had veered far away from that. They became experts. The more they knew about the law, the more they knew the law, they became distant from the Father's heart. Look at what it says in Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. 
In verse 47, it reads, For I delight in your commands because I love them. To love the word of, of God, to love the law of God, is to love the person who gave it. How can they be so militant about keeping the rules and become so distant from the giver of the rule? When you have father or a mother or teacher that wants to keep order or peace in the household or classroom, the rules are good. Have you ever seen a classroom that was not mismanaged by a teacher who didn't care? Like there could be a student who's sticking the, the, uh, the, the, the student next door with the, to, next to him with the pen. I mean, like to the point of bleeding and it doesn't care. There's no rules. Is that a happy classroom where everything, is a, everything goes? Absolutely not. When we look at the word of God that contains the commandments of God, this is the very word that logos, Jesus himself by which all things are made. The word of God, every time you open the Bible, you are becoming acquainted with Jesus. Don't look for him like, you know, in, don't look for him only in like these revival places or retreats. Every time in your silent moment, when you decide I'm going to open it up, and you open it up and you go to the Beatitudes or wherever. And when you're reading that chunk of, of scripture, you're hearing the Lord speak to you in your heart. And you're being nourished in that bread of life. You're taking it in. And your soul is coming to life, even if you don't feel it, even if you don't know it. You know, the, uh, the people that Jesus came to most opposition and conflict with, they were, they were the experts of the law. The ones that knew the Bible the most, you know. And I think it's because they had become so obsessed with the law itself that they had grown distant to the person who gave it, namely from God himself. They were so distant from God the Father that they did not recognize his son. That's why Jesus says, if you knew me, you would know the Father. That's what Jesus says. Right? And here's a danger is that we can take the entire Bible and approach it that way too as a means for my own personal benefit only. I look at the Bible, I'm very diligent in my study because it only has to do with me and my personal salvation. Guess what? If we do that, we will have betrayed the spirit of the word. The law does not only protect my relationship with God and my self-interests, but it also protects the interests of my neighbor, of the person next to me. This is why we are so utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit. So far, we went over only the first four of the commandments, right? And th these all have to do with God. And I mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, today is the Pentecost Sunday. When we think of the Pentecost, we think of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But before that happened, before anything with Jesus, you know, dying on the cross and resurrecting and ascending, before any of that happened, for the Jews... The Pentecost was 50 days of passing after the Passover. You guys remember what the Passover is? You know what they're celebrating when we're doing the Passover? What they would do in the celebration is that they would offer their first fruits and then to celebrate Moses' reception of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. The very thing that we're reading today, this moment, they're celebrating that on the Pentecost. And as far as the backdrop of the Pesach, the uh, Passover, it's when the Jews with the blood of the lamb painted over the doorposts, they were spared. They were passed over when every single firstborn, even that of the animals in Egypt, they were killed by the angel of death during that final plague. That is what the Passover is. It's 50 days later, 
Jews celebrating and giving thanks to God after the law was received. During the Exodus, when they had come out of Egypt, the Israelites were no longer slaves, but they were not yet truly free. If you have 430 years of slavery in your blood, man, your mind is still captivated by, by sin and their heart still is captivated by deceit. They're not truly free. So God grants them the Ten Commandments so that they can guard their freedom, at least with each other. If you have the Ten Commandments, you are a group of people that were given the same rules by which you're going to play. Right? I remember uh, reading a, a, a catechism of the Vatican, the Catholic Church. They say that the Ten Commandments is not laws that restrict human freedom, but rather protect it, defending human freedom. It contains the will of God, the fundamental rights and responsibilities inherent to every each human being. So if you ever talk to an ignorant person that says, oh, I can't believe in a God that institutes slavery, tell them, shut up. <laughs> Just tell them, you're so ignorant and so wrong because when God gives a law, when God, the living God, he did not institute human slavery. It was actually sin in the fall. As Jesus says in John uh, chapter 8, verse 26, law is incomplete. It cannot guarantee your freedom. You know what actually guarantees your freedom is this? It's Jesus Christ. This is what he says. When the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We look to the person who has fulfilled the law to its perfection to follow and to follow him. Therein lies the freedom of our deepest longing. The closer we are to Jesus, the more muted the things that are craving for our attention in the world, we will feel, as a consequence, more freedom in our lives. We will have that leeway in our hearts to really finally be able to, to extend kindness to our strangers and maybe even be bold enough to love our enemies. We're going to look at the fifth commandment, and I'm going to try to rush through this because we have this chart that's going to guide us. There is an interrelationship between the fifth commandment and the first one by way of authority. The issue is about authority. The first thing that got broken in the fall was authority of God. When human persons, when Adam and Eve first took of the fruit, the first thing that broke was that we wanted to be our own bosses. We didn't want to be under anybody. That was Adam and Eve. And even the, the culture of the United States, it's all about that. It's about in independence, autonomy, right? We want to be our own persons. We want to be the masters of our own destiny. We want to crowd God out of the picture. And that's what happens when we grow out of our, you know, when we, when we go into puberty, right? When we start getting like hair in different places. Oh, man, I'm becoming an adult now. We want to say like, mom, dad, I got this. I want to, I want to move on. I want to, find, I want to find myself. And then we start to disobey parents and and that is when, when the authority becomes challenged. It's the same thing that God wants to preserve. God wants to preserve. When you think about uh, the word conservative, conservatism and liberal, conservatism means to preserve what is good. I mean, that is how it's supposed to be used. You, know? you shall have no other gods before me is referring to God's sole and final authority. And when the fifth commandment speaks of authority of, of the father and mother here on earth, we're thanking God that they are our parents, even though they're not perfect. I love my mom. I love my dad. I honor them both. They're not perfect. They're not gods. 
for as long as I was living in their, under their roof before I got married, um, they really did take care of me. And as I honored them, I happened to glorify God. It is a commandment that holds a secret to protecting my self-worth as well as preserving my life here on earth. It's the first commandment that carries a promise. You honor your mother and father and you, your life will be long here on the earth. And what we notice right away is that the problem that we live in the, in the society and our culture, we talk about fatherlessness being a very big issue, right? It's because this authority has eroded and it's been destroyed at all levels of society. It's not race issue, a lot of people say. It's not, you know, the issue of our social problems is not race or classes. It's about the absence of fathers, absence of authority being, being uh, uh, followed. I pray that you yourselves will be guardians of authority. Guard the authority in the church, guard the authority in the society, and that you yourselves will have children that will guard your authority as parents when you become parents one day. The second sets of, the second sets of uh, commandments have to do with dignity and you know, our self-worth. If we make something and serve it, we are denigrating our value as human beings. We're lowering ourselves to the status of that things that were created. God doesn't want that for us. And when we do these things, how it translates into culture and society is this, is murder. Do not murder is the sixth commandment, right? Seventh, adultery. Do not commit adultery, right? Do not have sexual relations outside the covenantal uh, marital relationship between a man and wife is basically what it is. Every other form of sexuality is, is the corruption of, of, this, uh, of this worship. You know, we're making something that convenes us, ma making something that, that, that we prefer and we're just following along according to our devices. And the eighth one, do not steal. If there is no living God who is looking at my heart, what difference does it make whose things I steal? Some people have so much stuff that if I, even if I took a few things, they wouldn't even notice. You know, we could think that way, but, but we're contending. We're dealing with God who knows all things. And even before you stole, like even if you think about it, even if you have this deceitfulness in your heart, then you're already within the realm of sin. Let's go to the next Third commandment is do not use the, the Lord your God's name in vain, right? How does that relate with do not bear false testimony? They're very closely related. How we use our language. You know, when you share your testimony, you got to be able to share the testimony in all its, uh, its flaws. Look at how, when we look at the Bible, does, does the Bible exclude the fact that Moses was once a murderer? He says, do not murder, right? It's Moses that the law is given to for the people. He was the one that murdered the Egyptian and he had to flee to Midian, right? And yet it's included in his profile. As we read this, this, the life of this, this, this prophet par excellence, we see that he did commit one of the sins and he was forgiven. We know, how do we know that? Because God used him nevertheless. When we go much later down the line, another hero, Another one of the, my heroes of the Bible, King David. When he was a ruddy little child, he grabbed some pebbles from the wadi of the river and he swung that sling around and it took down a giant, a Philistine giant, Goliath. In the heydays, in the glory days of his youth, after he passed, after he assumed power, after he assumed the throne of Israel, what happens? 
he commits adultery. One night he can't go to sleep and he sees, looks out the window and he sees a woman bathing under the moonlight. I don't know what the heck she's doing bathing in the moonlight, but who cares? He abused his power to take her as his own when she was already a married woman. And then what does he do to cover it up? Double, double the, the, the sin doubles itself. He, he orchestrates for him to, to die, which is tantamount to murder. Adultery plus murder. That's King David, their beloved king, their, their messianic figure of that time. Don't blaspheme. Do not use the Lord your uh, God's name in vain. And do not bear false testimony against your neighbor to, di to, to disadvantage him. Do not be dishonest. In your dealings with one another, be honest. It's a critical flaw. If our testimony becomes suspect, if they stop believing in Jesus, it could be our fault because we sometimes confabulate, exaggerate, we fudge with the numbers. Why do we do that? When the final accounting is not from the people, the eyes of the people, but the living God who's peering into my soul. And lastly, Sabbath, uh, the Sabbath keeping fourth commandment is directly interrelated with the covetousness of the heart. Did you know that our heart is restless? It's a restless heart. I was listening to a Christian radio one morning coming to church and uh, it was a focus on the family. They're talking about how even married people, they have trouble with uh, pornography. Married people. So all you guys, you know, who have, who have some issue with that, uh, there was a Christian minister that was actually talking to Christians in the church and then they were asking all the men, because it was like a men's conference, and then they said, raise your hand if you're married and you're still struggling with the have issues with pornography. And, and except for like one person in like the auditorium, like, like a thousand, every, every man had their hands up. And the person who was presenting, he said his heart sank. His heart sank. It's covetousness. Covetousness is not being satisfied with what you have, but having your eyes on that thing that you want. It's not saying that the desire of something is wrong, but your neighbor has this, you want that. And covetousness goes even further. You, want, you don't want them to have it. That's covetousness. You don't want them to have that success. That person's rich, so you hate them because they're rich. You know that? The heart of the human person is so, is so uh, it's twisted that way. It's restless. It's restless. In order to keep our Sabbath truly holy, as in the fourth commandment, our hearts need that rest. We cannot be coveting our neighbor's property, our neighbor's wives or our husbands, or the prop, you know, order servants, right? Of course, if we're talking about a reality where God does not exist, who cares? Why should anything matter? Why shouldn't we just live as I pleased? If I am strong, good. Survival of the fittest, right? I should just oppress all those who are weaker than me, intellectually inferior, just oppress the heck out of them and just come on top. That's the world. That's how they live. But we live in a reality of eternity that's governed by God. 
Amen. Amen. So let's just do the real quick review and then I'm going to close. Number one, you shall have no gods before me. That's the first one, right? Number two, do not make for yourselves any idols in the image of the things that fly in the air and all those things. Do not make anything and serve those things, okay? Because you're made in God's image. You know, you're not, <laughs> I mean, how dare you go down, stoop that low? Number three, do not blaspheme. Do not use the Lord's name in vain. Some people, some young people, they say, oh, God told me to do this. God told me to do that. Just don't do that, you know? You may say this, God, I feel like God is telling me this, but be very cautious on trying to append the Lord's name, trying to make your, your story more weighty than it is. And then lastly, uh, number four, keep the Sabbath holy on the seventh day. Work really hard on the six days, but keep that one day for you and the Lord, or you will keep it holy. Number five, Honor your father and mother. That's the first of the of my of how I deal with people other than my son. And it begins with my parents. Number six, do not murder. Number seven, do not adulter. Number uh, seven, number eight, do not steal. Don't 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 cross that boundary. The boundary stone laws they they exist because you know God wants us to enjoy the property that we're stewards of during this lifetime without fear that you will lose it. Number nine, do not lie. Do not bear false testimony against your witness. Don't swindle them. Don't deceive. And then lastly, do not covet. Do not wish for things that you don't have that your neighbor has. You know why we come around into a full circle when we look at the coveting thing here? Adam and Eve. Let's go to Eve. The fall of mankind come from, comes from where? God gave humanity, there was only one law. There was only one law in the beginning when they were in the Garden of Eden. You may eat freely from all these things in the garden except for one fruit. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it, right? That was the only one rule that they had to keep. I'll grant you that the serpent, the Satan, did come in and deceive the evil, okay? But at the core, at the heart of why this failure occurred was because she looked at the fruit. She beheld it before her eyes. She gazed into it. She saw that it was pleasant to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. She wanted to, in the end, open her eyes, become autonomous. She wanted to become her own God. Covetousness can lead you in that, into that direction. It's one, of those, it's one of those things that you can't, other people cannot see because it's going on in here. It's going on in here all the time. When God gives us the Ten Commandments, He's not giving it to us to press down upon us, or He's not even giving us something that we can keep, actually. If you want to be honest to ourselves, He's showing us who He is. It's a mirror image of His perfection. And when we look at the Ten Commandments, we can only marvel and say, Holy, holy, holy. You are holy, I am. Today, we have the Holy Spirit that has descended onto us. And we dare to say, yes, this is Jesus. I see the picture of Jesus here in the Ten Commandments. And you know, today, I know that he will help me follow him. Amen? Let us close in prayer.
Our Father, we thank you for this message today and how we relate the Pentecost to the Ten Commandments. Lord, uh, before studying this, I didn't even know that uh, it just happened to fall like this. Where we're doing a study of Exodus and we're also uh, celebrating the day when your spirit was outpoured into your early church. Lord, pour your spirit once more, like you did in the Azusa streets. Pour your spirit here at NBC that we'll have young people prophesying, seeing visions and dreams, and uh, having healings take place because of our faith in you and your presence in us. Lord, bless us with your presence. You promised to a thousand generations, so we want to see it happening now. May our prayers be answered and may our journals be filled with truthful statements of your testimony of how you are faithful in jesus name pray these things